0: and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a a hugely influential guest on myself through his fanzine sold out and he's got an incredible documentary about Detroit hardcore that comes out. Today, if you're listening to this when this drops, Otto Bowie is here on the show, and it is a fantastic conversation. More on that in one second, but first, if you would like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, thank you for all the hard work you do, and he will get the message to me, and we can communicate that way. If you want to get in touch with me directly, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at left for Damien if you want to support the show and, and why wouldn't you want to support the show the best way to do that is by telling all your friends about this podcast letting everyone know that you know that you like this thing you can also support it by subscribing to it and rating it on iTunes thank you to everyone that does and of course there's always the patreon over there at patreon.com slash turned out punk thank you to all the people over there that do that and help support this show it means a lot. It really keeps the wheels on the wagon right now. And speaking of keeping the wheels on the wagon, thank you very much to the fine folks at Vans who came aboard a few years ago and said, Damien, do what you do. Just we'll help you cover the cost so you don't lose money on it. And they came aboard and have helped me cover the cost, which is great because somehow podcast costs keep going up. But they are here and they are supporting me with this thing. And I thank them. And hopefully in the new year, we get to hang out again. I really, uh, I miss those Hustle Vans parties. Oh boy, I need a House of Vans party right now. I think we could all do with a House of Vans party right now. So uh, until those House of Vans parties return, we can we can let Turned Out a Punk be a little slice of that. So you come here, and and, and we 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 get some fun times. and get to unplug from the rest of the world for a little bit. Uh, so thank you, Vans, for for allowing all of us to do that here on the show. All right, on to today's show. Today on the show is a guest who I've wanted to talk to for years. His fanzine, Sold Out, is a hugely influential fanzine on myself and, and many of my peers. Growing up in Southern Ontario, you know, it was after Sold Out, but Sold Out was kind of like, that was our triple X, that was our conflict, that was our forced exposure here, and, you know, that was the big zine. And so even though I was started going to shows after the fact, it was still in the ether, and you'd find old issues, and you'd be able to read interviews, well, fantastic interviews, or, you know, get the issue that came with the Flexi, or the Bad Brains poster, all these things. You know, it was just a part of growing up as a hardcore kid. So I've wanted to talk to Otto just because of that, and now fast forward to the present day, and Otto has just released, as of today, an incredible documentary looking at just a brief 10-month period in Detroit music, but that 10-month period changed not only Detroit music forever, but the world of punk music forever and ever. And that 10-month period, of course, is the, the birth of Midwest hardcore, I guess. You know, bands like The Necros, Negative Approach, The Fix, L7, not, not LA L7, the original L7. And and so many other incredible bands. And so this is hyper-focused. That's what I think I really enjoyed about this documentary is because it is... They're not trying to give you the whole history of Detroit music or even the whole history of Detroit punk or, or even the history of Detroit hardcore. Otto is hyper-focused on this 10-month period because it tells a completely kind of separate story. If you are now dying to see this documentary, which I hope you are, because if you're a fan of this podcast, I think you're really going to enjoy this thing. You can head over to the URL... DetroitHardcoreMovie.com and check it out. The film is called Dope, Hookers, and Pavement. The real and imagined history of Detroit hardcore. And everyone's in it. All the players you want to see are are in this thing. And uh, it's fantastic. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. This is a really... This is a great conversation. This is kind of my favorite type of conversation to have with someone because I'm learning the whole time. I went in there with a list of questions to ask Otto about stuff that I, I didn't know about. And I came out with answers. And uh, hopefully you do too. I love Detroit punk and Detroit hardcore. Everything. Everything about that city. It's just, it, it's such a a wealth of rock and roll. And uh, yeah, uh, I, so that, that's it. I'm not going to ramble on anymore. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Auto buoy on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> Otto, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Damien. Well, as I was just telling you off air, I'm a fan of, of a zine you did many lifetimes ago, uh sold out. I'm also a huge fan of your film. And mm-hmm. I just, you're someone who is an expert on an area geographically of punk rock and hardcore, which I think is is of of Heavy interest to anyone involved in the genre, but myself especially, I am just fascinated with Windsor and Detroit, and mm-hmm. can't wait to nerd out with you about this stuff. All right, all
1: right. Well, I'm, I'm I'm the head nerd. I
0: mean, as far as that goes, so let's 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 run with it. Well, let's start this off the way they all start off, which is auto. How did you get into punk? Do you Remember the first time you ever came across the genre?
1: Well, I think what it is is uh, let's go back. My first exposure to it was through two older brothers who were six and eight years older than me, respectively. They were not, uh, in terms of uh, Detroit, we'll say Detroit, we'll say Windsor, but we're all from Windsor, Canada, Ontario, Canada, but they were kind of very steeped in that early Detroit hardcore punk scene circa 1980, 81, 82, 83. Um, and I was like an 11 to 12 year old kid at that point in time. So I kind of witnessed this from afar. Like, why is my brother coming home one day with, uh, you know, we're wearing a leather jacket? Why is he suddenly have no hair? Why is he wearing uh, engineer boots? And for me, it was kind of, it was kind of, uh, kind of scary. I was 11, 12 year old, but also kind of fascinating um so that I, I kind of witnessed I kind of I, I just got so used to hearing in the basement discharge or SOA and and this is from a kid like me who's coming from literally from Queen and Elton John so it was just sort of this, this radical sort of shift in you know the sort of music I was hearing sounds I was hearing coming off the turntable so my exposure was at that point in time 1981 as a as a witness sort sort of kind of hiding hiding behind the sofa just watching what's going on with my two older brothers uh stepping forward a few years up until like 84 85 probably 85 i was 16 years old at that time and i'd kind of come around to what they had already left behind at that point in time which was hardcore punk and and so i had a bit of catch up to do in terms of uh you know starting to go see shows starting to buy my own records and this and that and then by virtue of the sort of person I am, I mean, I was kind of always a, you know, a hands-on sort of proactive nerd kid where it wasn't just enough to like uh, listen to music. I had to suddenly, you know, put on shows or I had to like uh, start a band or I had to screen a uh, screen a T-shirt or in ultimately I had to put on a fanzine. So my kind of involvement with that, it kind of came through them, but also by virtue, there's a psychological component to it where I was a sort of, um, you know, a marginalized kid to begin with. I mean, I'm not stupid. I'm not ugly. Uh, I played travel sports, hockey, baseball. You know, but I just never really kind of found any uh, sort of sense of belonging to any of those things. I was always a bit of a sort of a uh, outlier, a misfit. I mean, I could kind of get along with everybody, but you know, punk rock at that point in time seemed like a natural home for the sort of person I was and punk rock by virtue of or hardcore i'll say punk rock let's say hardcore punk at that point in time was the home to kids who uh were uh, marginalized were sort of uh left of center um in life itself and it attracts the good and the bad in that way you know I, I sort of like to think that i was one of the good kids in that i was very constructive with my involvement. And then just, you know, I, my active involvement, just to like sort of wrap it up there, goes from probably 19, I'd say 85 was my first show, or, or spring of 86. I saw a Discharge when they put out their uh, hair metal record in Detroit, uh, Great New World, which was a rude awakening because I realized what I was a fan of had already passed three, four years earlier. But then um, between 85 and 1991 was my sort of full immersion in this sort of music. And then after that, it kind of disappeared for a very long time. But it was never far from me, though, in terms of uh, what mattered to me and knowledge and
0: whatnot. So that brings us up to, like, the last few years where I did this project, which kind of brings me full circle. So going back to the very beginning, where did your brothers get into this stuff? Because, you know, obviously it's happening in Detroit. You know, I know they're very close, but it's not like this stuff was being played on the radio or anything. So where did they kind of pick up on this stuff? I think um, they picked up, and, you know... I'm sure. I think, my one, one brother, Lorenzo, who's a bit
1: older, he was born in 1961. His first uh, exposure to it was seeing a Teenage Head concert in 1980. Oh, wow. Uh, that he kind of happened upon, because I think my parents had a friend from out of town who was in, and, uh, you know, European guy, not by no means cool, but he was always interested in youth culture. And they found out that, hey, there's this band called Teenage Head playing punk rock and roll at this bar you know, called Danny's. And uh, my brother underage went with him and he saw it. And the next day he was playing road hockey, he couldn't stop talking about it. So that's Lorenzo's side of the story. Uh, my, my other brother, Dennis, was uh, always a bit of a, you know, I think it started like, it's weird because, the, the uh, you know, nobody listened to the Ramones in our house by 1980. Um, the Stooges, of course not. Um, the Pistols, yes. And and the Clash started kind of coming in. But I think one of the really weird things, if you ever think about, you um, for kids like how do you get to the pistols and the clash and the damned and and ultimately to hardcore punk was it was this uh song on a queen record their punk rock song i think on um news of the world i think it's is it called sheer heart attack yeah 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 you know that song and i think i remember them playing that a lot that song and then someone muttering about something about punk rock and then i think from there they realized oh there's more than just this queen song which sounds like a punk song and then they kind of went full on from there and they just found found one another they found their tribe somehow in their high school ultimately in detroit and when my one brother went off to school in kitchener Waterloo, there that was like 1983 and then you know that was just he, he was fully immersed in it i think at that point in time up until the time i started getting involved by then they'd already left it behind because they turned
0: 20 whatever the case was So <laughs> well you know as you kind of mentioned in the documentary it is it's fascinating how it is such a youth orientated kind of uh, kind of music. And a lot mm-hmm. of people just naturally almost age out of it after a certain point. And it feels like like 84, 85 was the natural getting off point for that first wave of, of hardcore kids.
1: Yeah, because I think it's, it's one of those things that like, granted, I mean, I came I came on board after a lot of these sort of originators had moved on. Mm-hmm. I think in, in in the film, a couple of people talk about it towards the end. Andy Wendler says from the Necro says, you know, there's the size of the box that we'd created by virtual hardcore ultimately became too small. So we outgrew it. And it's always been my, my opinion that, you know, with, with these, uh, you know, hardcore punk musicians, the minute you learn to play, there's no turning back. Like the minute you learn to play like Joe Perry from Aerosmith, you're not going to go back. You're going to, that's what you're going to play that point forward. And I just think the different, Um, branches of evolution out of hardcore punk at that point in time were sort of you know disappointing for someone who was into hardcore punk at that time but in retrospect it's very uh, perfectly understandable you know you had negative approach turns into the laughing hyenas Mm -hmm. which makes really great sense in retrospect then you had Husker Du really perfecting that sort of midwest power pop punk right and then you had ian with fugazi which was natural progression and then you know some people went into metal and whatnot and bad brains were perfectly a perfect evolution but at the time it was all hard to ingest because it was something that was not what we were expecting and so i think i think those evolutions are something that at the time they're kind of disappointing disheartening as a as a young person new to hardcore punk you want to see it you want to hear it but you have to understand these people are a few years older and they've already passed through it. So in some respects, it's kind of a coming of age music in some way at that point in time. And we're not going to talk about how over the years later it's changed or how it's served certain platforms. I'm sure you can too, but it's at that point in time, it was a launching point. It was a, a departure point. It was something that was designed to be outgrown at that point in time.
0: Yeah. It's almost like by its very nature, hardcore, unlike punk, was would you it had to be hardcore like it it had to be of a certain refinement to be part of the genre punk allowed you to kind of experiment a little bit more and to get old a little bit more
1: yeah i mean punk was a little more decadent in that way that you know you could sort of uh, afford to like sort of deviate and uh by virtue of the audience being sort of permissive almost you know you could you know, you you, you still find su- support and fans and fellowship, whatever. Hardcore was either like a binary, at the time, was a binary sort of uh, music. I mean, either it was or it wasn't. And I think what's happening now is some people became left behind the whole binary component of hardcore and did well with it. And I think in retrospect, it really, it, 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 you we're thankful they kind of didn't sort of retread or reinvent what they'd already gotten away with earlier.
0: Well, yeah, it's funny now, like, you know, obviously at the time as kind of expressed in the documentary, like laughing hyenas is a, is a departure, but yep. you know, sonically when you listen to it now, it's like, well, this sounds exactly in line, like to, you know, with the, with the benefit of hindsight, yep. it all looks like it fits together. Oh, it fits together. I think what it is with the hyenas, cause the hyenas, I have a special place in my heart for them
1: because, um, I think by, I saw them many times, uh, with their first lineup with, uh. Jim Kimball and Kevin Monroe and at the time they were a band that helped me kind of grow along with what they were doing or where they were going you know at that point in time I didn't know about you know their influences even Alice Cooper let alone Birthday Party and things like that but by watching them because the, the same level of intensity was there the same emotional sort of um you know sort of component was there, but just the level of articulation was a little more sophisticated, not sophisticated to the untrained listener. But for me, it's just and so then I realized with them, yeah, you know what, they're gonna kind of help me get out of a a rut that I might sort of find myself too comfortable in. And you know, they they just laughing at this lead me to Sonic youth, lead me to this and that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm pushing or and all these things. So I mean in that way it's yeah, I kind of I'm glad they did what they did because they brought a lot of fans along with them. And without much compromise in terms of like you're saying with what they were doing in terms of the level of, you know, intensity or intimidation between NA negative approach and laughing. Hyenas, it's a fairly superficial difference between the two and that's it.
0: Yeah. And also you, you mentioned, um, you know, Sonic youth and pussy galore there. And it's amazing how those bands both are kind of developing parallel to hardcore at the same time mm-hmm. and are coming out of punk rock, but yet the the walls are so high at that point that they are really separate scenes. Like, you know, Pussy Galore famously puts that like, what is it, fuck Ian on the back of the seven? <laughs> you know, like it's, it feels so weird how how you're like it's so different mm-hmm. to today where it feels a lot more kind of like broken down th- these walls again. But at that time it was very important that these divides were there. Well, I think the divides were, I
1: mean, it kind of we thrived on the divides, otherwise, you know, if there wasn't if there wasn't a little bit of antagonism between this sort of splintering sub-genres of what effect essentially was rock and roll, you know, kind of through the filter of punk rock and roll and then hard. I mean, I bet you any money. I mean, I can't say for a fact that I know from Sonic his standpoint, for some of those guys, hardcore was a big part of their upbringing and they, they sort of, you know, they've evolved beyond that. And I'm certain with John Spencer and things like that, it was also possibly a part of his upbringing for how long, who knows, or how important. I mean, so I think what it is with, with those guys, you know, the, 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 the film deals, I mean, if I could just pivot to the film for a second, just in how Ties to what we're talking about here. I wanted to. I mean, English film. And I really only wanted to deal with that period in Detroit during which the mold had been was being set in terms of the the mold as far as musical mold and the genre was being set. Because what I found was that when I got involved a few years later, which in kid time is an eternity. You know, two years is like you know, it's like it's like twenty years And now time. Lifetime, yeah, of course, yeah um that, by by the time I had sort of been gotten involved with it, it the the you know the template had been set and mastered and just and it, it repeated and then there wasn't a lot of evolution going on so I think with you know how that relates to the film I just wanted to deal with that initial sort of the setting of the mold midwest hardcore mold because that's where the film only really deals with a 10- month window because I, after those 10 months I think these kids who were involved I'm talking about that original, crowd of 30 plus kids in detroit mommy windsor who were there after 10 months it had sort of you know it had served its purpose and it was time to move on and uh, you know, leave behind sort of childish things, so to speak, and, and that sort of thing. That's why the, the film really interests me to that, because there are some people who ask me, well, why don't you deal with things like the clubhouse or the hungry brain or the scene, this and that later? And I just said, you know why? Because by then the mold had been set and the mold hadn't been broken. It had just been sort of recast and, recast and recast and recast and recast. And as a newcomer, it's interesting. As a new kid on the scene, it's interesting. But in the long view, looking back, you'll see that okay it's it's the originators are worth talking about at this point in time so that's where the film deals deals with a bit of that and the limitations and how effectively all the people who were involved hardcore took them there and they kind of gracefully got off at that point in time
0: yeah like notwithstanding you know obviously the stooges mc5 moment earlier and and the white stripes moment way later but like that's the biggest moment like that's the, the that's that 10 months that changes the world of music like those bands those 30 people like uh, you know you go to you go around the world and there's bands that are influenced by that 10 uh-huh. months oh i i know that and that's that that it's, it's a magic little
1: period i think you know a couple of people in the film even say that they said it was a magic little sort of you know the andy like i said andy wendler again it's called it the, the freezer was an incubator where everybody was able to do what they wanted. I mean, they're all sort of, you know, inspired by the same things, but in Detroit, yeah, there's that 10 month window, which there wasn't a lot of output. It wasn't terribly pro- prolific, but at, at the same time, it's sort of so, it's almost mythologized and it's sort of inspirational. And there's a component of it too, just beyond the music. It was the whole sort of the, you know, we talk about do it yourself now, is just part of our lexicon in 2021 or 2020. Mm-hmm and but DIY these are kids that they didn't invent fanzines they didn't invent putting on your own shows and they didn't invent putting out your own records but certainly these these kids at that point in time we're talking touch and go records and you know by extension even things like discord records Um, sort of set the example with how it can be done when nobody's going to help you nobody's going to pay any attention nobody's going to cover you nobody's going to play your records they just created something for themselves and I think that's actually the sort of inspirational kind of I hate to call it but I call it the feel good aspect of the film is that these kids did it because nobody else is going to do it for them and in doing it they set a hell of a precedent you know I talked off camera like touch and go was a huge influence on sub pop right Mm. at the time And we didn't get into it in the film because it's too much to talk about. And Corey wanted to be a little more sort of modest about it. But we take that for granted. And and it ties in with the film, Dave Buick, who put out the White Stripes first 45s. Huge fan of what Touch and Go and Discord were doing back in that day, you know, the early 80s. So I think there is that resonance there, the example that they set, the fact that things can be done. And, you know, that's the important thing. And I think that's the big lesson. You know, you can love the music, But it's also a good thing for, like, people now or kids to know that say, hey, you don't need uh, technology, you don't need a lot of money, you just need uh, people and sort of the the incentive and the compulsion to get things done. And I think that's a story. And also, if I can just sort of prattle on a little more about that, Mm -hmm. it it was something that was, with respect to Detroit, was not precedented because the Detroit punk scene uh, which centered around like the bookie scene, which is like from 78 to like 81, was a very different thing. It was, by comparison, it was, it was very much a rock and roll scene. So in Detroit, there was no real precedent. I mean, let's not forget that after all the Stooges and the MC5 were still effectively major label bands that played shows that were sort of business endeavors. Right. And that were part of a marketplace in the market demand. I mean, sell a lot of records, but, but you know what I mean? They were, they were all part of something that was an establishment or the sort of a, the periphery of the establishment. Whereas this hardcore Detroit hardcore was not part of any establishment whatsoever. It was illicit. It was underground. It was on its own terms and certainly guided by guided by its own mission. And it took its influences, not from anywhere in Detroit, not from the Stooges, MC5, or anything like that, but they took their influences from LA and, and uh, what, what Discord was doing in Washington at that time.
0: Mm-hmm. I think you know I'm, I'm obsessed. I'm fascinated by that sort of Tremor Records, late '70s, early '80s. You mm-hmm. know, like you're saying, more the the more rock and roll stuff. Yeah, because it is it is like a really prolific scene. Like there's a lot of singles. They're they're impossible to find and they're pretty obscure. <laughs> yeah. But there's a lot of them, right? Like it must have been a big oh, scene. There are. Yeah, Gary,
1: I think it's Gary Reichel uh, from who uh, ran that, I believe, I, I could be wrong, but yeah, they put out a lot of stuff, but the fact is they just ended up being so, just, you know, no by no fault of its own, it ended up just being a regional phenomenon, which is, it's interesting because in the film, and I didn't use this in the film because I didn't want to see negative, but when I was talking to Ian McKay, Ian McKay says, you know, he's a bit of a scholar about punk rock, you know, he knows his stuff. His brain cells are all firing perfectly good, right? And he says, I cannot put a life of me <laughs> name one Detroit punk band other than the obvious you know proto punk bands right yeah he says I yeah. cannot name one Detroit punk and that was the thing with those records i mean the tremor records and all those bands was that they were kind of you know you know read they were like you know it's Detroit I guess Detroit bands there's kind of I don't know it was you know why it didn't resonate beyond there other than people like you and other people who are scholarly about it and and enjoy it and i mean i've even enjoyed some of the music now that i have had to listen to it for this film kind of picking some tracks it's still a great punk rock and roll i call it i wouldn't call it exclusively punk rock but punk rock and roll like did it exist
0: on both sides of the board of this scene in the same way the hardcore scene did well, I think what it is,
1: is that the hardcore scene, no, I think in w- Windsor was just sort of the, um, the
0: host to the,
1: um, the evolution of Detroit hardcore. There was no real Windsor hardcore bands circa 1980, 81, 82. First My, call it, it started talk-
0: in like 83, I guess, is it? What's that story? Say that again? Sorry, when did the Flesh Columns get going?
1: Flesh Columns started in like 83. I think they started actually playing, and they were still very young at that time. Mm. Um, and But I think what happened is in Windsor, if you want to talk about Canada, I think Canada, I mean, Windsor, but you know, had at that point in time, probably the two primary bands were the Spies and the Dry Heaves. They put out 45s, so that that means a lot for a band at that time. But beyond that, there really wasn't much of a scene in Windsor as far as a punk rock scene. I mean, uh, there were bands, I remember hearing and just like sort of talking to people. And of course, this project where there'd be like a battle of the bands and some band goes up and plays a punk set and this and that, and does, does stupid things and whatever, but there's nobody, there's nothing really organized at that point in time. I think there were still at that point in time, the punk bands in Windsor were weekend bands, party bands, stood for nothing other than, you know, you know, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And Windsor never really had, like my brothers played in a band that played at the freezer, but never really sort of established themselves as being home to anything. You know, they, they were always pretty much effectively a, an annex of Detroit and sort of a, the gun-free suburb of the Detroit punk and hardcore scene.
0: Yeah. I, w- I will definitely say the, the Spies and the Dry singles singles are, are classics. And I would put them in the top 10 of Canadian punk singles like both those singles are just are killer and really hold up. Like did those bands cross over as far as you know, to that Detroit kind of. I, I think they did there. There is some, they did play there. I know that because I've been, you know, in doing all the sort of primary
1: research for this project, I had to read old touch and goes and, in you know, the Tesco when he re-released his book and there were show reviews at bookies with the spies mm-hmm. playing there and um, uh, the dry heaves playing shows in detroit and there's some enthusiasm for them but i think it's one thing i should add about this too and i just totally like you know um i might have mentioned this to you before with our email correspondence was that a lot of the notable figures in the detroit punk scene that target the bookies the late 70s scene were from windsor were from canada i mean dave Hanna, who who played in ramrods the 27 the boners is a Windsor guy. He's like just went over there and I guess never came back You know, <laughs> back then when you could do that, you know, um, Vince Bannon, who was a, you know, the sort of the impresario, the, 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 the booking guy at bookies who went on to do clutch cargoes, which was like a major punk promoter, a hardcore promoter in the early eighties is a Windsor guy Canadian. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. um, Mark Norton, AKA Ivan from the Ramrods and who's now a filmmaker went to high school in Windsor. I mean, maybe his dad got a job or a placement here. Who knows what? I can't remember. But he said, yeah, I grew up kind of in Windsor. So it's a weird little sort of pedigree that we have that, you know, you know, Detroit punk and Detroit hardcore owes a lot to Windsor. And Windsor doesn't have much else to be proud of, <laughs> but but, <laughs> but that. And so I think that's kind of fascinating in some way. And the other thing is, I mean, not to be regionalist about it, but I don't think, Detroit, I mean, Detroit, I don't think Toronto played a big part of what was going on in Windsor. At that no, point
0: in time. No, It really feels like very separate worlds from, you know, the Flyers. You don't really see the bands coming here and playing. Like, it feels like Toronto was was so far away compared to Detroit for Windsor. Like, it, why would it be even in the... Why? I mean, geographically, but also I think other than the fact like Teenage Head coming down,
1: I don't see any evidence of like the, you know, the, the Diodes playing Windsor or the, or the uh, you know, Vile Tones or even stuff like, I mean, Forgotten Rebels. I, I don't ever remember seeing any evidence of these bands ever so it's kind of interesting that way that windsor was sort of independent of the remainder of canada and it's sort of evolution as a as a punk rock sort of
0: you know uh annex of detroit it's interesting really interesting i think it always you know even when i was going to hardcore shows in the beginning it felt like it was uh it was still um kind of a separate world like the bands like that were going on there and the scene that was going on there owed a lot more to what was happening in Detroit versus like Toronto, which was super influenced by was what was going on in Buffalo at the time. Really, it's, it's interesting. What, what what time frame were you talking about? What
1: year? What year sort of window would you say? Because I, I mean, I I have a few sort of things about Toronto that I grew up that I remember. Like you know, the first. Correct me if I'm wrong. With the first sort of wave of hardcore punk or hardcore in Toronto was like youth, 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 direct action. Um, am I missing anybody there? Was there anybody who was part of that first? sort of
0: wave of hardcore Toronto. yeah well there's like chronic submission to would i say like but you know um direct action sudden impact sudden right? impact Sunday. as well you're right absolutely okay. um and then but that that really feels like especially with youth 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 there's like a real direct connection to kind of like the the first wave toronto punk scene you know like through these through these tape comps that they were on together or shows whereas like you said in the documentary, it feels like with the exception of the static, like the stuff that came out of Detroit was just so radically different when it became hardcore versus punk. In Toronto, it feels like it it very much had some sort of, you know, natural growth.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, yeah, in Detroit, I mean, Detroit, it was really sort of seg- uh, segregated, stratified, sort of antagonistic relationships between the two at the time. By virtue of you know whatever reasons, um, but I think yeah it, like nobody you know to tie into that nobody really looked at Toronto for much of anything growing up. Now that I think about it, I mean I started going to see hardcore shows or like post hardcore shows in Toronto in eighty seven eighty eight. I never like I never went to Larry's Hideaway or nothing like that. But it was more like Silver Dollar. And then some bigger shows. And uh, but up until that point, yeah, I never did really sort of in Windsor. I think all our orientation was towards Detroit. Everything was it was all 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 about that. And then by virtue of that, you go deeper into the States. So yeah, there was in Detroit, to your to what you're saying, the 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 walls were built up between punk and hardcore at that point in time. Absolutely.
0: So when you started going to shows like that, that first show, you mentioned that discharge show in 84. Oh, no, it was 84. I think it was, it was either spring of 86 or like
1: fall oh, of 85. Yeah, it was like 85, 86 slash.
0: Okay. Yeah. So yeah, sorry. 85, 86. Like, as you're saying, that's kind of like after the, uh, the gold rush that was hardcore. Like, what was the, what were the state of things when you started going to shows at that wow. point in, in terms of bands and what was happening?
1: okay well I think you know talking about like me going as you know as like what I was like a 17 year old kid or 16 or 17 it was fascinating so like I mean your standards were pretty low as far as being impressed and exciting (laughs) you know what I mean it's just like oh there's a lot of kids who look like me kind of here what's going on but then also at the same time I noticed all the bands that we went to go see you know the the hair was fully grown out the solos were long you know as the necros were already doing their tangled up thing um i was expecting to see like you know you know conquest for death but no i show up and they're doing their montrose or whatever the fuck they're doing at that point in time and then um discharge comes on and i'm thinking oh, okay you know what here i think see that forget it no way this is just like you know just totally like glam dope sort of you know acrobatic metal whatever the yep. fuck. and so in that respect this is kind of like a weird turnoff in retrospect i think it's great i loved it It kind of is kind of a bit of a culture shock. But what was different though, at that point in time, the 85, 86, the scene had now been populated for people who were there for all the wrong reasons. I hate to say it, but at that point in time, you know, as far as the people who are going to punk shows, the basket of deplorables was pretty significant, right? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. And a lot of shitty people, a lot of violence, a lot of the whole white supremacy thing was pretty much unapologetically there, um and at the time i kind of noticed that and, and the more i went the more less attractive it became in that way which is why i started doing shows of my own in canada bringing in bands you know you know in 86 87 88 you know some good bands i put on you know you always when you put on i don't know if you ever put on shows damien did you ever put on shows
0: growing up or at all or i did i think i've done three and all uh, all those times i luckily had someone that did most of the heavy lifting and I okay. was just mainly flyer design and, I see and okay. promotion. Well, for me, the the rule was always be ready to lose two hundred bucks. No yeah, exactly. Right,
1: you're, you're going to lose two hundred bucks, right? And you're not going to get laid. You're not going. You're going to be the first to show up and the last to leave. Yeah, because everybody, you know. But my thing is, like I was saying, the reason I say that is because it, I'd go to these shows in Detroit in 85, 86, 87. and they just got kind of nasty, kind of gross, in that they were like, there's a lot of latent violence, a lot of sort of like people that you otherwise would have no business being with. And that's the one thing with hardcore. It tended to attract um people for all the right reasons and all the wrong reasons. And before I was talking about the deplorables, yeah, because you know the deplorables couldn't function anywhere else in life, but they can get away with it at a punk show or hardcore show. And they'd show up there. And it just became sort of kind of ugly. And this was actually around the, like the graystone before it closed in 87 and then some other, you know, some some fucking dog shit club called blondies which was like a crossover club it was like you know you know, sort of clubs i don't know if you're out in toronto but you go there and it's sort of securities run by local biker bands who are actually you know being efficient in their duties and also selling drugs while they're there <laughs> it's just yeah like, yeah so, so that was detroit at that point in time late 80s and i just you know i just said okay i'm gonna do my own shows and then it's gonna attract you know certain type and then that happened but yeah that was the, that was the whole problem with Detroit the post hardcore it just became kind of an ugly scene in some ways
0: so were your brothers like when you said they kind of get on got it out of this music what like what were they going to at this point like were they into completely different stuff or like was there any... like,
1: it's like let's say 1985 86 right okay yeah I think yeah. what is they were like you know like I said they're six and eight years old six and eight years older than me respect you know both of them respectively one of them suddenly at that point in time, you know, this is gravitates towards, okay. They go from like uh necros, negative approach, discord bands. Then suddenly they discover British punk and they're listening to GBH and broken bones, things like that. Mm-hmm. But then suddenly they realize that, okay, GBH and broken bones, they're going down a path that's been sort of set by motorhead. So then my brother suddenly, okay, I'm going to, might as well listen to Motorhead at that point in time. And then, oh, who else is listening to Motorhead? Oh, Anthrax and Metallica. So then suddenly he kind of follows that whole sort of, you know, tangent of interest. So he goes from hardcore to like that early, you know, what, what was it called? Speed metal, thrash metal? I can't remember. the, the yeah, Crossover,
0: term. I guess, but more, more Cros- like thrash metal, I guess. That yeah, but sense. the
1: early, early iteration, even before yeah. the hardcore bands started getting into it, like the Suicidals or the chrome mags Before that, they were like Exciter was another band. He got, you know, I don't know whether from Ottawa or something like that. But those guys were like a natural evolution for one brother, Dennis out of hardcore for the other brother, it kind of, you know, whatever, maybe he discovered Prince or something, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. <laughs> or he discovered, you know, sort of girls or sex or something. And then sort of, it kind of evolved out of that. To, I mean, I can't even remember in what respect, but so, I mean, their evolutions were there. Are, and I think their are evolutions are, are also like with most people, like with myself, by virtue of you develop as a person, you get a little more sort of, um, you know, a little more sophisticated in your, you know, what you can respond to. Then also, this, I, I, you know, the, the scope of emotions in hardcore was very limited. I mean, primary emotion was anger, right? And then mm-hmm. it comes to a point in life where, okay, there's other emotions that you want to sort of, not necessarily explore, that you feel. It's not just anger and frustration. And so then you find you, you sort of pursue music that might kind of reflect that, I guess, in some ways. Because I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong. Is there another emotion, especially to like the early sort of fledgling hardcore scene that was sort of explored or mined? Like I don't remember hearing any hardcore love songs or hardcore songs with sex or something. I guess like... there's
0: well, there's definitely you know songs. I guess there's you know the the odd song about sex, and I guess there's trust by. Seven seconds, which I guess is the only hardcore love. I think, but it's so, it's so benign and it's so like sort <laughs> of, you know, I, 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 I you know, it's, I don't want
1: to hear that. I mean, it's like sort <laughs> of like, that's not transgressive. That's not sort of, you know, sort of not tra- trans, transcendent. not even transgressive. It's neither. Yeah. You know, it's a sort of, mo- but I think, you know, what it is in that way, but it was all like, at that point in time, like hardcore was like guided by a single uh, scope of emotions were fairly narrow. Mm-hmm. And then also the politics were very sort of didactic in the fact that, okay, you know, there's a position and you, it wasn't so much about asking questions about like sort of dictating answers. So I think what happens when you're young and you kind of grow past that a bit or you start asking beyond the sort of parameters that you realize there's more cooking out there. And then by virtue, you also, you know, you kind of, there's the off ramp there for some of that as well. But, you know, in retrospect, though, you know, it's all perfectly understandable. There's nothing to be sad or sort of sort of uh, uh, regret, resentful or remorseful about because in life, you realize that that was just a, a sort of a you know, hardcore is just that part that served you well at that point in your life. And I think you only kind of come to realize that as you get a little older, he said, if it wasn't for that, I wouldn't have that that genetic marker in me, what I call the hardcore punk rock genetic tribal marker in me, that now, if somebody looks at me, superficial they would never know i have it by talking to me for more than five minutes they might realize okay that was a big part of your life and that's where you come from and that's the key thing
0: as well oh definitely that's why i do this podcast is because i like you're saying like it's something that stays with people um and i don't i don't know if like you know other other short periods of people's lives affect them necessarily in the same way you know be it pop culture thing as as hardcore does because like you're saying you carry it for life well, you care for life, and I think that's one thing I
1: learned through this film project. I'm, I'm talking to people now that are in their mid 50s and up, and are in in early 60s, in some cases, and these people are like pretty well adjusted, sort of integrated people now. They're like lawyers, they're psychologists, yeah. they're educators. You know, all these things are, you know, John Brandon's the exception and good for that. We need that, right? Yeah. But all these people are fairly well adjusted people, whereas if you ran into them, you know. In the supermarket, you would never know what they know or where they come from or what they've been coached by in life. But they all, and I found this through the task of interviewing them, some of them were more dismissive of it to begin with. But some of them were, you know, they all came around to sort of coming to terms, with acknowledging how big a part of their life this was. And it's not cheap nostalgia. It's not like, oh, good old days, best years of my life. They just said, you know, at that point in time when I could have been trying to getting drunk, trying to get laid, taking drugs, being stupid, riding around in my car, I was doing this. And we were putting out fanzines and we were like going around and, you know, finding like-minded people like ourselves and building a community. And for a lot of them now, they they kind of are very endeared to that point in their life for a very good reason. It's a good school and it's good character development for a lot of people. And it is for me, and I'm sure it is for you because we're talking about it right now in a certainly more you know, kind of a universal context. Right. And I think that's the one thing about going through that is very important. You never, you can never sort of, not never, but it's pretty hard to not uh, accept that it's a part of your life and how substantial a part of your life it might've been and still is. And that's the fascinating thing about this project, talking to these people, like, you know, and when I do these, I mean, you do a lot of interviews, Damon. Mm-hmm. I, I've done, you know, this project I did almost 70 and, almost all these people are like, they start their interview with like, I don't know what I can talk about. I don't know how much I remember. I don't know how much help I can be to you. They all start as if they're doing me a favor, which they are. But but, but by the end of it, I think there's this realization that says, yeah, this is a small part of my life, but it's a huge part. Yeah. a small part of my life in terms of time frame, but it's a huge part of my life in terms of the psychological makeup that it kind of gave me. And I think that's a beautiful thing about it. And that's what this film really kind of, you know, it kind of just racks that into focus for me. And it's actually, I, that's why I find it kind of the very positive part of the film is that way, is that these, uh, you know, these people kind of, are, we're all like good people. They're coached by things that were not considered to be good and healthy at the time.
0: It's funny you brought up, you know, John Brandon there because he seems like, you know, you bring it up in the in the movie that, you know, from the static to negative approach. Yeah. But even into laughing hyenas and then, you know, to, to easy action today, yeah, he's the guy that's always there. Like he's the guy who, you know, as much as we're talking about how people age out, he's the lifer, and and really he, seems to be that kind of force. He is. He he is in
1: some respects, uh, rock and roll, Detroit rock and roll. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think about it, because you know, there's no there's no turning back I mean it's not now there was no turning back 25 years ago for him but you know but in in for all the hardship that he's endured by virtue of his lifestyles and habits and whatnot he's come out of it as a, a survivor a very decent person intact mm-hmm. person
0: mm-hmm.
1: funny person generous gracious person and I think he's one of these guys that like you know I, I hate to say it but like you know uh, why why do we always talk about Iggy Pop why don't we talk about John <laughs> Brannan too right and that's one thing is for me it's sort of like you know we always talk about the mc5 why aren't we talking about negative approach and that's the important thing is that some of these people do re- represent there's some aspect an element of detroit rock and roll at its most pure kind of essence that a guy like john Brannan embodies fully and it's almost like he's, he's just too real to be you know, to be packaged and sold. I think that's the one thing with him, right? Yeah. Um, there's something I did when uh, if you I don't know if you ever saw those Detroit punks little uh, films that uh, Mark Norton made, like John Brandon is one. They're on YouTube, and then mm-hmm. um, and I think um, I I might have said something. I was I was interviewed for that. And I said something to the effect that you know what is there's success would have destroyed John Brandon. I don't mean. He would have been like been drinking or doing drugs or that. It would no. It would have legitimized him. It would have made him palatable. It would have made him digestible <laughs> to yeah. people, which is like a a big no no. If you want to talk about like you know rock or like hard rock and roll, raw rock and roll, you don't make it sort of you know digestible to people. And the fact that he hasn't been recognized or succeeded um, in in that sort of way is to, is benefit for people like you and me or people who really care about rock and roll and and you know the authenticity of it he's he's like the guy he's a national treasure i'm telling you i mean like you know the fact that you know he's still with us and he's still doing music is sort of you know it's it's you you can't you only you only you only sort of recognize him when he's gone and that's the sad fact so that's why he's fantastic in that way
0: and he's also like you know, like a, a Frank Sinatra or something where he's getting more control over his instrument as he goes on and more power to his voice almost as he goes on. Like it's it's really like, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure to the uninitiated, he's just yelling. But to anyone that, you know, like fans of the genre, you yeah, know, yeah, you hear that he is he is the master. He's the master. I think, you know, with the hyenas, that's the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of cared about
1: the blues only after I heard the laughing hyenas do their interpretation of the blues. And that's why he's great that way. I've always said, though, because I've, I've made little music films for someone else in Detroit, a non-punk friend of mine. But I always said, John, I want to do an acoustic number with you. I want to do a number where <laughs> yeah. you're not hiding behind volume. And he kind of laughed and said, Oh, whatever, maybe one day. And I think now's the time, because I think, you know, that's the sort of thing there that it'd be very fascinating to see him sort of, in some respects, do something like that. Intimidating, powerful, yes, but also a bit vulnerable, a bit bare would be very interesting. But we'll see. We'll see. Maybe that's the next task at hand.
0: Yeah, like I think it's it's you know, uh to see him kind of go into that Nick Cave space a little more, you know, would be really interesting because he could croon in a way. Like you're right, like there's there's something Mm -hmm. that he hasn't explored yet with that. Oh, yeah. There is even even that like there that one hyenas
1: record, which I I never owned and I borrowed it I didn't like it at the time, hard times. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's a great it's great stonesy rock and roll record that he yeah. was able to sort of he was able to pull off. And um that is something that I think that's sort of an area he should revisit and do something with. But you know, you don't want to be too successful because then he'll he'll just it'll become, you know, <laughs> it's just it'll not be our thing and it's just not gonna be that in that way, it'll be compromised. But uh, yeah, he's great. He's He is, in some respects, I think, you know, embodies, you know, you know what hard Detroit hardcore uh, came to in a good way, in terms of in the, in the most fascinating sort of creative way. He
0: definitely embodies that. Well, you brought up Iggy Pop, and I've never stood him side by side like that and looked at it, but you're right. Like, Iggy left. Like first chance he got, he's he's out of Detroit. He's on like, a plane to Berlin or whatever he was. He's in Berlin, he's in LA, he's ultimately in Miami. And like who could blame him? Like what a what a trip yeah. it was. But I know the... and I think he's great, and he's in some he's a fantastic and he's an original and he's whatnot, but he was still and
1: he's still a I mean, and my thing is like he's still a an establishment figure, he's a celebrity, he's not an outlaw. He was an outlaw at the time when he was sort of covered in peanut butter and glass, you yeah. know, but yeah. that he, you know, he left that behind and then sort of became a sort of, you know, obviously offbeat, but he was a, he became a commodity. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know what, for me, it's just, it's a bit more sort of the, uh, the risks at that point are a little more manufactured. They're a little more sort of calculated. And so it's becomes a, a bit of a different thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think with John, he could maybe at some point in his life or posthumously, whatever be recognized as a yeah he kind of took that tangent when, when, you know, Iggy jumped in the limousine for the airport to go to Berlin, John sort of hitched a ride up the, a different road. And I think that's the sort of, you know, we'll see, we'll see where in 10 years now, how we're talking about this and whatnot, where we're all at.
0: Yeah, no, it, it, it's, it's, uh I don't know, it's mm-hmm. just, it's amazing the personalities that came out of that scene. And the documentary does a, an amazing job of capturing some of these people. And the fact that yeah it, it is, uh, it seems like it was like a much more, i don't know like a diverse scene than something like dc um at its core you know like it feels like it was like like more of a ragtag scene i guess kind of coming together like you're saying scrappy and just doing it themselves yeah than a lot of other places
1: it was it was I mean, it was diverse i mean looking at it now like you had bands obviously the na necros board youth which are pretty much straight at you hardcore you mm-hmm. know what i mean loud fast um but then you had bands obviously like l7 Mm-hmm. Who were uh, way more eclectic. That's Larissa's band, who was John's uh, girlfriend at the time. But they were perfectly, totally embraced by that scene, L7, even though they were like kind of a jazzy post-punk band, fully embraced. Nobody threw bottles at them, nobody jeered. Um, they had another band that never recorded called Harold, which was this sort of oddball, sort of not really a joke band, but kind of like a weird skater kids doing some, I don't know, some peri-ubu type. Noisy type calamity thing, but they were there. Harold was there. Um, and you know, it was just and, and then McDonald's or another band who were like a, a joke band, a comic band. I mean, it was just sort of at that point in time, I think it was all you know, the kids were. I don't know if they say they were open, I mean, maybe they maybe they were open minded because they, they're they're like if you ever read Touch and Go at that point in time, like mm-hmm. 80, 81, 82 the records that Tesco talks about and he puts on his uh, top 10, you know, it's not just, you know, Angelic Upstarts and Cockney Rejects and, and Black Flag and this. No, there's things like Throbbing Gristle. There's things like Ultravox and whatnot. So I think these kids did have a pretty broad vocabulary as far as musically speaking. They were not sort of, not certainly speaking for myself, they were not as narrow as you would imagine they were. No, they were pretty well phrased in music. And I think that might've showed with their sort of tolerance for different oddball things. I mean, when you look at some of these old uh, show flyers, gig flyers, hardcore flyers, they're not always entirely homogenous. There's some odd sort of pairings in there. And that's sort of, that's a cool thing too. I think, you know, they are a lot more, you know, kind of sophisticated and broad-minded as far as being 17-year-olds than we probably would be willing to give them credit for.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. Like to be into... All these imports that they're into like as you say just flipping through touch and go yeah it paints a lot broader picture and i think that's one of the biggest takeaways i got from the documentary was con- the way you know you contextualize l7 forming yeah. you know like a band that you know i i got that single and i'm like oh this is cool like it's kind of an outlier but yeah. really seeing how they fit in and how important they were to the scene and just you know like what uh like it really broadened picture for me it brought in the picture
1: i I think it was like the support or the sort of engagement of l7 in that scene had a lot to do with camaraderie and Mm. the fact that these kids there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot there was some i'm sure but there wasn't a ton of judgment going on so you know i think a band like l7 you know well yeah they were embraced you know i mean that's the whole thing they were they felt welcome and they kept coming back but it's interesting at that point in time also that, you know, for me, it's just fascinating. It's something I wanted to talk to in the, about in the film. But the kids were also, at that point in time, metal was a big influence, like early, like sort of, you know, Venom and like Judas Priest, those late 70s, early 80s records. Those were kids are all get, these were hardcore kids are already also fascinated with that stuff, which makes me think these kids were just, in some respects, they weren't just art-damaged kids or they weren't just, you know what I mean? These kids were just like, rock and roll kids on some level who also love that type of music as well you know what i mean that's kind of That's kind of cool in that way as well. There's not a lot of, I mean, what I'm saying is that with with L7, they're great and they're welcome, but there's a bit of pretense maybe there, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, but when kids are also like getting all excited, when Tesco gets excited about a Venom record, there's not a lot of pretense there. (laughs) You're just like, you're a misfit. you're You're a weirdo and that's it. And there's no, no, you can't explain that away. So I think there's that too, as well, that goes so the breadth of influence there and it's not influence direct, but breadth of sort of what they were kind of you know kind of interested in. It's like these are like misfit kids who just love misfit music and and you know hardcore punk was their like sort of primary language, but it you know it was the lexicon kind of extended beyond that. That's kind of fascinating too.
0: Like so going back to when you're getting into shows. You yeah. know, given the fact that you are, you know, very much in the same way. When I started going to shows, I felt the same way that I was looking back to the previous time. Yeah. Um. You know, what were some of the bands that you saw that you looked at as being a continuation for that, or being something that you're like, okay, well, that's that's more what I've been looking for. Okay.
1: Well, the- I think what it is with um with uh with let's say hyenas. We talked about hyenas. Hy- mm-hmm. Hyenas demonstrated a great evolution out of out of structured hardcore without compromising. They were one. Um, I think you know i saw sam hayne a few times early on i think there were an interesting evolution out of the comic book approach of the misfits mm-hmm. into something a little more brooding a little more sort of dense but then that all kind of went to hell soon enough when um you know with danzig i mean it became silly after a while um at that point in time I'm trying to think now, I mean, Fugazi, I was there early. I got, you know, recently I found some pictures and I sent them to Ian of, of their first tour, uh, not a tour, but the first road trip they did shows in 1987 before their first EP came out. And they tamed, came to not Detroit, but up to Flint, Michigan. And I went up to go see them. And they were interesting in that way because I loved Embrace, that mm-hmm. record that came post, you know, the Embrace record after Minor Threat. There was just, um, I thought it was a great step out of, hardcore into something you know what now is considered like emo the original uh, sort of the the basis for emo music whatever the fuck that is but embrace was a great sort of thing but then when fugazi came along i said they okay they did that they did something even more interesting discordant and, and kind of asymmetrical um uh early on i remember with the early seattle grunge things or some bands that came through like green river was an interesting band that ended up becoming mud honey or something and they were kind of like odd oh. at that point in time i'm still a kid with a t-shirt and a shaved head yeah. and I'm watching. you know i'm still watching this this is i mean i might not say i, I like it but I, it's sort of it's peculiar to me enough to sort of keep me sort of wondering and i think other bands i mean of course like by 1986 i mean bad brains did I against eye which is like a monumental shift for them, but a fantastic shift. Um, the same thing with something like the, the first Cro-Mags record, The Age of Coral, that was just mm-hmm. something, okay, you know what? We're still a hardcore band, but you know we're gonna do something unlike what anybody's done. And they kind of did a great job at that. So I think there was some of those things around, 86 was a pivotal year for a lot of bands between you know uh, the Hyenas, which were, I think the first record might've come out in 87, the Bad Brains, the cro pushing the New York thing to like another level without losing much. Um, and then there's a lot of the, like the Seattle band, not Seattle, it's the Minneapolis bands, like the Who Screw Do, the Replacements, you know, those things were kind of interesting as well. So I think, and then there's the DC bands. I mean, like I did shows, I did shows with Dag Nasty early on, not with Dave Smalley, but with uh, when Peter Kortner sang. And they were, they were great because they were still, in some respects, a a band that was rooted in hardcore punk, but we're no longer a hardcore punk band, but that was okay because they were still good at the time. So I think there are those, but if something comes to me from shows I saw, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, it's weird, but like, if if you, do you want to talk about the fanzine a bit? Because this kind of ties in with the fanzine. Yeah,
0: yeah for sure. Because that's what the thing is like, I noticed in the fanzine, you're definitely covering, you know, a wide array of bands, but from the sounds of it, it's never, it, it was like, you never really found the sound that you had been looking for. Almost. No. And I think what is the fanzine was a sort of vehicle for my growth, which is the one
1: reason I've always never really sort of been a, a entirely big fan of my own fanzine because <laughs> it represented my sort of uh, a bit of not insecurity, but my evolution, but my evolution was kind of between here and there, but neither place really. Okay. You know, I wanted yeah. to be suburban voice. I wanted to be XXX, the East coast ones. Right. But at the same time, I want. I was a little bored with the the, the kind of scope of what they're doing, but even though they were, they seemed like real and legitimate, and authentic to me. So then, what happened was, I just start getting exposed to more things, and and you know, you're growing. You're 19, you're 20, you can put a sentence together now. And I realized, okay, you know what? I'm going to do a fanzine. I got to sort of go beyond what's what's my musical interest and cultural interest. So then, like when you're talking to like, you know, I do a Henry Rollins interview, I barely even talk about rollins man i'm trying to talk about other things and and i realized right then and there it says oh fuck i mean like i'm doing a fanzine but i've lost interest in my subjects so i'm starting to like you know you know ask you know more sort of different sort of subject matter going towards and that's what i realized the fanzine represented my evolution as a person and i think at a point in time where it's just hard it never really satisfied me fully from a standpoint I was covering or talking about what I wanted. And that's just the, by virtue of, you know, wow, you're, you're kind of growing up and you're getting smarter and a little more worldly. And I think the fancy in that way is, is a record of that for me, for good and for bad. I mean, it, it could have been either one or the other. It could have been a hardcore punk fancy all the way, or it could have been alternative press or forced exposure. But it's kind of floating somewhere between those, which, you know, I, it just it just left me sort of like not really too entirely satisfied with it. Now looking at it in retrospect, yeah, you know, it's not bad. I mean, maybe I tried a bit too hard to be, you know, more sophisticated or or articulate than I was at the time, but you know, it is what it is in that respect. That's why the fan team. you know, I mentioned earlier off camera that I decided it was over because I realized that uh, why issue 10, I really, there wasn't really a lot that kind of intrigued me enough to sort of pursue it to like find out more behind the story behind the story. And so I realized, okay, I've done this enough. I've, I've sat, satisfied my intellectual curiosity, and I can't just sort of become a punk promoter booster for the sake of being a punk promoter booster. So I let it go. And that's why I think in that respect, uh, it's good as a historical record of what was happening at that point in time. Because keep in mind, that was, you know, this is late 80s, going to 1990, I think, when I stopped publishing. At that point in time, you know, um, you know the music was getting a lot more sort of, uh, you know, m- cosmopolitan I, I think you know like i think one of the last issues i, I reviewed goo from sonic youth and i'm like it's one of these things like i hate to say i like it but i kind of like this right and <laughs> i realize this is this is, uh you know this is where i'm at but then i can't really continue doing this if that's that's going to be my sort of area of you know fascination anymore it's a different thing now that's why I always think, you know once you're once you're no longer sort of tied to your past let it go and that's what happened with the fanzine i decided to let it go
0: I, I love the zine because I think a lot of times there are, you, that does read through, you know, like <clears throat> be it the way you're critical of a band and a show that you saw for, yeah. you know, not calling out the fact that there were Nazis in the crowd and not like, you know, standing up for people being attacked by Nazis or yeah. or another section where you, you just, it's it's an, in, it's a like a I think it's a great document, a very interesting document because it really does feel like you're out of step with the time and don't really like where this thing's going and i think ultimately hardcore does come kind of back around uh to to the to what you were kind of looking for i feel like mm-hmm. but i that's why i love you know i i've got um, i don't have every issue i don't have issue 1 or 2 but yeah, yeah. i've kept most of my oh, well, i've I've tried to track down as many as i can because I'll i think, get you, i'll get you scans i'll get you scans <laughs> okay, that'd be awesome i'd love to see issue 1 too because yeah i think it is such an interesting progression from like 4 to 10 and where you're, where you're at by the end of it, it is. And I think,
1: like I was saying, it's a reflection of where I'm at as a person. And, and, and granted, I was so fluid at that time in that evolution that it became sort of for me, it, like I was saying, it, it was neither one nor the other. It was not suburban voice or X, Triple X, Fanzine, which were the big ones at that time. And I certainly didn't want to be Max and Rock and Roll. You know, fuck that. That was just like sort of at its own. It's great, but it had its own set of problems. You know, that didn't appeal to me. And so kind of, it just reflects my growth. It's one of those things that's also funny is that like, you know, even as, I mean, as a, as a guy who's writing, I mean, I I lost interest in just doing transcribed interviews. And I took an interest in trying to write about a band, like literally write, you know, sort of paragraph text about a band. And, and it's kind of funny because I I think sometimes I kind of pull it off, but I'm never really there, but there's, it's loaded with a lot of, pretense and effort and, and and keep in mind also one thing is a big influence on me at that point in time was uh motor booty do you know motor booty oh
0: yeah absolutely one of the okay. great fanzines <laughs> of all time and motor booty brought
1: into you know for for people out there who don't know motor booty motor booty was produced out of ann arbor involved a lot of people from the detroit hardcore scene but they were uh, obviously now college kids so they're college educated yeah and they're um but they also have a sense of humor which is something I very little associated with my experience with hardcore punk and putting out a fanzine. Because I didn't look at Touch and Go at that point in time, the old version, the old Tesco zines. I had no exposure to those at that point in time. So humor was this whole, new, this whole sort of smart ass snarkiness sort of thing that was kind of appealing. I tried to fold a bit of that into what I was doing, but I was just still a bit too green. And now I obviously know I was too green, but at the time it seemed a bit like, ah, that's what I want to do. There's one article in particular I like doing. It was a little thing like, because I was, I was friends with the guys in Slapshot, Mark McKay, the drummer, and then, and uh, the band. And I did some road shows with them or whatever. And I just like the fact that Choke was, uh, you know, at the time was just like the Archie Bunker of hardcore, of pump in, 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 um, in America, right, and Max Max and rock and roll hated him. He's a fucking, you know, Nazi jingoist. This that, and I kind of knew, you know, he's got his foibles and his shortcomings. So I decided, you know what, I'm going to amuse myself. I'm just going to do a compendium of all the offensive things he's ever said, right, in interviews, <laughs> in everything. I said. And I just listed them, right. And it just, for me, that was kind of where it was going. It was just like, you know what, it, it bring some humor into it, but bring a bit of you know, sort of, you know. Something uh you know provocative and offensive, but at the same time, you know, amusing on some level. So it kind of came to that as well. I think humor kind of was wanted I wanted to be a bigger part of it, part of it, but I don't think my sense of humor was developed enough at that point in time.
0: Well, that specifically was like a huge influence. Like I remember uh, uh-huh. you know, like finding old issues of sold out and and you know, um yeah. Fat Steve who did Tana zine and, and Mike Halichuk who plays and fucked up with me and yeah. In a zine back then like that specifically was like oh this is amazing like this is this we got to do something like this in a zine well the thing is i tried to take it to the next level but that next
1: level for me was not i didn't know what that next level was like i was saying earlier there was that something called alternative press at the time i don't know if yeah. it was a big like larger tabloid it still covered like some punk and post-punk and post-hardcore and I, do i want to do that do I want to do like forced exposures a little more college Rocky, whatever I can't remember what it was. And, but the thing is I never knew what that next platform was at the time, which is why it became, I became a bit like sort of amorphous in that way. It's like, ah, what, what am I really at this? By the time like the 10th issue came out, it's just like, ah, but I think the one thing as well is you know, I did have, I did want to bring up the production values a bit because, um, I don't know exactly how old you are, Damien, but WYSIWYG was a huge thing in, in self publishing at that point. WYSIWYG is what you see, is what you get, where you you, you work on a little Mac plus, or sort whatever of the fuck those computers were, mm-hmm. and you can start laying things out. And then suddenly it was still paste, like cut and paste on a blueboard. But that was a big thing where I wanted to start doing something that was a little more uh, slicker. But the problem is, when you're a little more slicker, you're losing the energy of the publication. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You're losing that cut-up quality, that sort of that sort of spontaneous irreverence. By becoming more capable, I lost my sort of my edge and my irreverence. And that's the other thing I kind of realized in retrospect, I became a little too buttoned up in the production of it. In, you know, but some people like that. It looks like, oh, it's well designed. I'll pay two dollars for this. Whereas I'd rather pay $2 for something that was laid out on toilet paper now, to be honest with you. (laughs) But, and that's the sort of, that's the other thing, you know what I mean? That's part of growth. You know, you grow and you become, you know, you think
0: you're sort of getting better, but you're just becoming more constricted. But that happened too. Well, uh, Otto, we've talked for a while and I could talk to you forever. And I'd love to have you back for a part two, but before I let you go, can I, can I go through, like, a bunch of different bands? Because I'm obsessed with this period of Detroit artwork Absolutely. that you're getting I, into. And I, I know a lot. I know a lot, but I don't know everything. But I'll I'll, I'll tell you what I can. Well, one one band that would have been happening at the exact same time that I have no information about other than having a few records was Daddy and the Boys. Do you have any information or did you ever see that band? They, I believe they were Daddy. from Dearborn, Michigan. Daddy and the Boys. Is there? A, I okay. Can, number one, I've I've never heard of them. Number two, what era are they? They they have an a, their first seven inches is eighty five, and they did an LP in eighty seven. I think one other single in in between wow. those.
1: That's that's in the thick of when I was there. Um, are they a by for lack of a better word, are they a straight up punk band or straight up hardcore
0: band? They they are something that I felt would have been hearkening back to that first wave of Detroit. Like it feels like they would have not been fans of hardcore and would have been like it's definitely got like a post not yeah. post hardcore but like you know a, a hardcore influence is definitely there but it's certainly well, what, what, what do you say is a comparable band like sort of a more like uh like trying to like um i just off the top of my head angry simones maybe but oh, like okay okay you know but there's like but maybe even early black flag a little bit but wow. like more detroit rock and roll and kind of like shittier eighty late eighties production. I see,
1: because <laughs> there was that. There were a lot of peripheral little scenes that were like. There's something called a place called Paychecks. There's the paycheck scene, which had all these bands like uh you know, Vertical Pillows, you know, Polish Muslims, okay, Daddy and the Boys, maybe very likely that were sort of like as hardcore kids. You're so like your blinders are so rigid that you might not even see what's going on elsewhere so i think uh but that one okay you got me on that stumped oh for one no nothing I, I got nothing on daddy and the boys
0: well this one i i think you might because i think they did cross over at least very infamously with one show that i've heard about okay played with you through today but that's boom in the legion of doom oh boom and the legion of doom matt boom battle creek michigan <laughs> yeah. you know, fant- fant- i was at that show
1: i was at that show with the the the, the fresh Deer carcass. It was fantastic. It was it was something uh you know, it was surreal. Yeah, it was you know, you want to talk about like data, like data, you know, like as an art sort of as a sort of art art action, like you know, you want to talk about yeah. like you know, you know, who's that auto mule, these these crazy German guys, you know what I mean? Their blood and guts art. That's what that was. It was provocative, it was fantastic. I was a kid. You know, uh, used to say, like, I just love the fact that they were uptight and they were, you know, the fact that they didn't, you know, they wouldn't eat that deer suddenly precluded their judgment of what was going on, even though it was roadkill. It's not like, you know, but these, these guys, these crackers from like, you know, Battle Creek rolled into town, picked up this roadkill on the way in and turned it into their like set piece. And it was fantastic. At the time I was a weirdo kid. Cause you know, and even a straight edge weirdo kid. And I said, this is amazing. And the thing is what happened the next night and I wasn't there because that weekend I think Rollins Band also played the first show or second show and, and I missed it for whatever reason. Yeah, this is the Deer Skull from the night before was still <laughs> kicking around because and Legion Doom might have played the Friday night with I think 7 Seconds Youth to of Today. Okay. It's Bill, totally It's like gg Allen or something. Just like ridiculous, right? <laughs> it's just like fucking ridiculous. Yeah. But I think what happened was that was a Friday night but the next night Rollins Band played I wasn't at the Rollins Man Show for whatever reason. I typically would be there, but I wasn't there for whatever reason. And I guess a friend of mine who saw the show said, Henry found the skull. Somehow it turned up. He brought it up on stage in the middle of his set, pulled out an eyeball with a drumstick that was still in the socket of the deer skull and swallowed it or put it in his mouth or washed it. (laughs) I don't know if that's all all there true, but the guy who told it to me was 15 years old and couldn't drink. So, I mean, maybe he imagined it or he dreamt it later that night. But that's a weird little story from that same weekend. You know, I can probably get you the date for that show because I might even have a flyer for it. Bo- Bo- Boom and Alicia Doom were, were like the real deal as far as you want to talk about, you know, like punk rock hicks, like sort of, you know, flyover country hicks. They were it. And they had another uh, uh, sort of a a brother band. I don't know if you know about called Jim Jones and the Kool-Aid Kids. Oh, they have an LP, right? I think. I think think they might have put on an LP. Yeah, they did. They just jumped straight to an LP. Okay. Somehow. But they were like this early kind of weird, at the time we didn't really kind of get it, but they were kind of like this weird, like kind of stoner metal, nothing too, but the lines were not straight in it though. It was just sort of noisy, fucked up shit from people who were just like, know just baked or stoned or but they were like also from that western michigan you know the the, they were another kind of fascinating band in that way too there's another band in michigan before you go to your next one detroit called slaughterhouse i don't know if you know anything about that was the next band i was going to go to that seven it scares the shit out of me oh that was a that was a weird i mean that bob madigan died he died from liver disease many years ago but he was this guy, and that was his band. And like I say, the big the influence was there, like, you know, Throbbing Gristle, Psychic TV, this and that. But a little more, I, there was a
0: term they used to kick around back in the day
1: called pig fuck music. I don't know.
0: Yes, we, we talk about that a lot on this show. Pig fuck music pig, is a well, popular they were kind topic like, here.
1: Yeah, they were the, okay, it's, it's a go-to topic. Well, they were, I think, the Detroit urban equivalent of something like that. <laughs> and they were kind of, I only saw them once, but it was like I was at the back of the room. Uh, And it was a sort of show where like, you know, people expose themselves and it's noisy and they get heckled and the fight breaks out. And I think there was another band who would play with them called the Roy experience, ROI experience, where this guy, some like burnout hippie guy, but with short hair, looked pretty straight laced, but he would sing. uh, His mic was fitted to a mannequin leg and he would sing. And there was something, there's a story, if we're going to gossip for a second, when the Cro-Mags first came, they played before came out they did a small midwest tour i didn't see the show but i guess uh the band was being heckled by roy from the roy experience who was a friend of the guys the slaughterhouse and i guess john joseph just gave him a flying kick to the chest off the stage because he couldn't put up with this this weird burnout hippie kind of cat calling him <laughs> shit like that. so the point is that scene these guys were all did not shy away from doing things that were unpleasant or uncomfortable or awkward and slaughterhouse was just like at the forefront of that but they were all like kind of okay guys too even if you met them sober and off
0: stage they're perfectly kind of okay guys it's funny because uh dave pajo said that when slint did their first ever cb show uh-huh. uh slaughterhouse opened for them. oh really he, yeah said and he was like describing this band to me and he's like i think they were called slaughterhouse and they're from <laughs> michigan and i'm like oh my god that's seven inch like that was the first i'd ever heard anyone talk about them other than the seven inch which it's got to be one of the most disturbing, disturbing layouts I've ever seen on any record ever. I mean, I haven't, I haven't, I mean, I, I never had it, but I probably saw it. They, nothing was taboo
1: with those guys. Nothing. Yeah. yeah. Not, but the thing is, though, so, I mean, they were actually okay guys when you meet them. Like I, I, for some reason I had to go to Bob Madigan's house once or twice for whatever reason, I can't remember. And he was a polite guy offered, invited me in, gave me a glass of water, you know, you know, just to check the glass versus. <laughs> but I mean, and but he was like they were something that, like you know, they were a phenomenon. I think those are sort of bands like Boom and Legion Doom, Slaughterhouse, not so much Jim Jones, but some of those bands they were just like weirdly they're kind of like degenerate post-hardcore bands that were kind of fascinating and on some level. And I think really,
0: I mean, they're worth talking about that we were talking about them now oh yeah definitely and immortalizing and immortalizing i think it's very important one other band i wanted to bring up to you and you got to come back and do this part too. we come back and do a course. part two at some point but we'll talk uh, about the film we'll talk about the film more next time we kind of reconnect Absolutely. i'll be i will definitely be talking about the film before and yeah. after the interview uh, as sure. well but okay. um but one band that wasn't in the film that i was really surprised about but doesn't seem to come up at all in the conversation about hardcore a lot of times is is the state and I was just wondering uh, why, like how they fit in.
1: Yeah, the state, I mean, as far as I remember, they were technically not active. I'm just speaking slowly now because I'm thinking while I'm talking. They were not active in the Detroit hardcore scene because I've, I've, you know, kind of, I did a lot of research on the on the film. They never really turned up in the span of 81, 82. They, I think they turned up in late 82 uh, in, in, they're an Ann Arbor band. Mm-hmm. But they weren't really uh, part of within the purview of the film. They weren't part of that sort of f- the f- the formative era of Detroit hardcore in Detroit. Whatever was happening out in Ann Arbor, I wish I could speak a little more, a little more authority about. But I think they kind of because I think their record was like eighty three. There's forty. There's seven inch. I was eighty three. Yeah, and uh, they might open for the Misfits when they played like the Union Hall or the, the Student Union in 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 um, Ann Arbor a connection to detroit the, the 8182 freezer centered scene that i dealt with but they were and they were around i
0: think up until like when i started going to see shows but i never i never did see them though never did yeah, they, they, uh, I think they're also weirdly on one of those cruising Detroit comps that has kind of some of the older bands on it. But I think that once again is like 83 that came out. 83, yeah. Yeah, I think that I'm the state. I definitely remember. And there's another band that also was like Western Mission was born without a face. They were a little
1: later, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I think a year later, 84. Um, but some of these out, out, outer, like, you know, Violent Apathy is probably the only band from outside of Detroit other than Ohio that really kind of had an active engagement with the early you know sort of uh, first iteration of the detroit hardcore scene and they were out in kalamazoo jackson jackson slash kalamazoo but i think other than that most of the bands were like you know ringed around detroit or down in
0: Miami at that point in time well the movie's phenomenal and i think this just lays the groundwork for a sequel Thank, I mean, I'd love to talk about the, you know, a little more about the
1: film and the process of the film. And I think there's some things about who's not in the film is also worth talking about. And I'm gonna, uh, I am gonna I want to talk about that in a very sort of respectful way. And it's unfortunate, but there's a few people I wish I would have talked to. to um, and there's also we can talk about the filmmaking process, you know, but I'd rather talk about punk rock and how it's central to it and even the origins of the film. But, yeah, we'll save that for, for a follow up conver- uh, conversation if you've got a window anytime soon. I'm
0: around. So. That's for sure. Thank you, Otto, for coming on the show. And Otto will be back for a part two at some point in the future. But in the interim, head over to DetroitHardcoreMovie.com and check out this fantastic movie um, because uh, you'll learn something. I learned tons. Uh, and, And I got to see people on film that I've never seen before, which is... Which is what I live for. Which is what I live for. Speaking of what I live for, next week on the show, I live for making your requests come true. Or I should say, Tristan lives for making your requests come true. Because next week on the show, after the uh, the flood of demand in the wake of the Pylon episode, we have Fred Schneider from the b 52s. That's right, Fred is here to talk about the cramps, to talk about the Sex Pistols, to talk about Pylon, and to talk about uh, working with Steve Albini. Which, you know, I, what a world we live in where, where you know, these, these things all coalesce and come together through punk rock. Well, that's it. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, as always, black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids. We need to protect trans people, or help trans people protect themselves. Um, Go out there, get informed, show up, be involved, sign petitions, donate money if you can, um, lend support, learn, read, smash fascism, and fuck Nazis. That's it. That, that sums it up perfectly. Uh, go out there and sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come and look for your organs, you're not going to need them. You're going to be like, take these things. They're just, just, just literally dead weight at this point because you'd be dead. More or less dead by that point. Um, go out there and make your own culture. You'll start a band, start a fanzine, start a podcast, do whatever you need to do. It'll help with your um, with your mental health. Uh, and, and also, you know, it might help with someone else's mental health. You know, you you don't even have to put it out there in the world. You can just do it for yourself and it will still yield benefits. Um, and I think that's it. Wear a mask and I'll see you uh, next episode on the show. Thanks for listening. Bye.